Welcome to the Exponential Podcast. My name is Peyton Jones, and as Exponential's content director, I'll be your guide to the curation of the world's largest multiplication library of resources and training. We currently have four shows running Monday through Thursday, each with a different thrust towards accelerating multiplication. On Monday, join us for front lines tackling current issues facing pastors and planners. On Tuesday, tune in for Biblically Speaking, Theological Foundations for Transformative Race Conversations. On Wednesdays, Ralph Moorhead's Practical Multiplication, A Pastor's Guide to Accelerating Multiplication. And lastly, Candid Conversations is on Thursday, Unpacking Definitions of Diversity. Be sure to catch them all as they will serve as equipping companions on your discipleship journey towards multiplication. Today, join me and Daniel Yang on Frontlines. The Frontline program seeks to encourage and equip pastors and planners to better understand and navigate the current and future trends in church ministry. Each episode invites thought leaders and advanced practitioners in ministry to inform and inspire pastors and planners as they continue what they do on the field. Well, hey, good afternoon, folks, from where I'm sitting here in Chicagoland, at least. Uh, Welcome to Frontlines, a weekly program to encourage and equip good folks like you, uh, pastors and leaders that are tackling frontline issues uh, in your local church. So really appreciate your engagement. Love all the comments that we've been receiving over the last few episodes. My name is Daniel Yang. I'm the director of the Senate Institute, and uh, it's a think tank for church planning. And normally, my co-host would be uh, the infamous uh, Peyton Jones. But this week, I think he's taking cover in a bombshell somewhere uh, until the elections are over. I, I think I think that's where he's at. Either that or he's on vacation. Uh, but that's totally okay because I'm really, really honored to have with me uh, this week, not just one guest, but two guests. Uh, we've got back with us uh, Warren Bird and then also Jim Tomberlin. And, and Warren was with us last week. Uh, he was discussing with Peyton and I his newest research on megachurches. Warren's the Vice President of Research and Equipping at the Evangelical Council for Financial Accountability. That's that little blue sticker that you really want on your uh, organization's website. And we also have with this Tim Tomerlin. Tim, am I saying your last name correctly? Yeah, no, Jim, Jim Tomerlin. Jim, Jim, sorry. Jim Tomerlin. Yeah. Yep. Jim Tomerlin. Uh, and Jim is the multi-site merger and succession specialist at the Unstuck Group, uh, which he's also the chief of staff at Christ Fellowship Church in Miami. And before that, Jim, you were the founder and senior consultant at multi-site solutions, and that came underneath Unstuck. Is that correct? Yes, we emerged actually uh, last year. Great, great. Wow. Well, and that's exactly what we're talking about today is mm-hmm. uh, how mergers, specifically church mergers, can lead to more reproducing churches. And that really is a uh, such a crucial topic uh, for, for a lot of us, because for some of us in the midst of planting, uh, you'll find that um, down the road, I think Warren made this comment last week, that most a lot of churches that are given buildings actually happen through church mergers. We'll talk about that in a second. But also for a lot of organizations, uh, you know, we think about church planting, we think about church revitalization, and sometimes we think about church closures. But church mergers is really an important part of how God is actually reproducing health uh, in the kingdom of God. And that's what we're going to talk about today. Specifically, uh, I think Warren and Jim are going to talk about their book, Better Together, which they wrote a couple years ago, and they have an expanded and updated version. There you go, right there on the screen. So, uh, Warren and Jim, thanks so much for being on the uh, front lines with me today. Uh, did I miss anything about your introductions there that you, you might want to talk about? Do you have an interesting dog? Do you have an interesting hobby? The, the most important thing to know about us is we both love Jesus and uh, yeah. we both love the local church and sure. what God is doing through it. And we are just delighted to be part of uh, his good work and want to give you some yeah. tools to help you flourish, thrive and multiply. Love that. Love it. Thanks for that, Warren. And man, I really do feel that warmth and that love for Jesus from you. Hey, Jim, let me go to you first. So what was the story and the inspiration behind the original book? I think you guys wrote that back in 2012. Um, Yes, before 2012, a couple years before that, Warren Bird at the time, at the vice president of uh, Leadership Network of Research and uh, wrote, called me and said, Jim, are you seeing a lot of mergers or seeing any mergers in your multi-site consulting? And I said, I am. Uh, and he said, so are we at Leadership Network. I think God is up to something, a new kind of merger. We ought to write a book about it. And so that came to pass and published and released in 2012. And uh, that was a um, 
uh, a game changer for uh, for us and for the church. It was the first time a book a, a book had been written on mergers, and um, and we saw something new and um, we um, wrote about it. We gave some language to uh, that merger conversation and some tools and some resources. Told a lot of stories, and then. Um, Nine years later, our publisher contacts us and says, uh, we'd like to release this in a paperback. It's been a steady, steady selling book these last uh, eight years, and uh, we'd like to make it uh, more accessible, more available in a paperback. Would you guys be okay with that? And so, Warren, what did we say? We said on one condition that we do fresh research. <laughs> and uh, we did a national survey of just under a thousand churches that had merged, been part of a merger in one way or another. And uh, we incorporated that data into 28 merger facts into the new book. You'll see several of them today. And in fact, let me just tease with one, uh, because Daniel alluded to it uh, a minute ago, that 20% of church plants go to a church planter. So let me just spell that out uh, from the current slide. Oops. Sorry. Warren is amazing. He can chew gum and walk at the same time. No, actually, I saw Ed Stetzer uh, uh, tweeting and talking at the same time on a, on a, and I thought, well, if Ed can do that, I can at least learn how to cut the PowerPoint on and off. Okay. So look, 20% of mergers become a location for a new or replanted church. This is exciting. This is just amazing. It's going to help. It is helping. Uh, significantly with uh, multiplication of of the church planting movement. And the other fun factoids, especially for this audience, and then I'll shut up and let go back to Jim, is the whole idea of, of multi-site, uh, which is partnering with mergers, that 40% uh, of merger campuses come by way of merger. And in other news, mergers are continuing to happen and uh, so this is this is a weaving together of opportunities that are happening in wonderful ways. Yeah, that's great. And before we jump into the the, the details of all that, because I mean, the, the, I mean, I want to get back to the twenty percent of mergers become a location in a church plant. Um, but give us an idea what, uh, of the conditions for mergers, because uh, not all mergers are the same. Uh, there are different reasons for mergers. For those of you who are leading churches right now, you might be asking, is it worth us thinking about a merger with the church down the street or the church across town? But from your experience, from your research, what are the different uh, classifications of merger that you've seen? It's a great question, Daniel. And if you go to that slide, uh, you asked a question earlier, who initiates mergers? Mm -hmm. And uh, the slide after that, there's a chart there, Warren. Yeah, um, the, the, the seven cycles or the seven stages of the church life cycle. This is a tool that we developed at Unstuck Group where every church uh, uh, will find itself in one of these stages of their life cycle from launch to life support into the end. And uh, we have a, a, a self-assessment survey on our website at theunstuckgroup.com. And so we have over 15,000 churches have taken this uh, survey. And this is where we get these statistics, uh, Daniel. But we basically have these different stages. About 15% of, of the 320,000 Protestant churches are in some kind of growing stage uh, of, of their journey. But about 85% uh, are stuck or in decline or struggling. I like to say that ch all churches fall into three big categories. Some are strong. Those are those on the left side. The 15% or so are growing. Uh, there are those who are stuck. That's about 60% of the churches in America. And then there are those who are struggling. They're in life preservation or life support. And so uh, who's a good candidate for merging? All of them are. All of them are because strong churches are often looking for facilities or church planters that are growing, looking for a location, a permanent location to start meeting in. Uh, and so uh, and they're looking to expand their impact and their reach to reproduce and multiply in other locations. Um, so the strong churches are good candidates to have someone join with them. And then stuck churches, of course, um, they are stuck. And even sometimes they don't even realize they're stuck or sometimes they do know they're stuck and they're okay with that. And so, but, uh, but many of those church leaders are realized, you know what, we're, we're okay. We can survive, but you know, we want to do more than just survive. We want to thrive and we want to be a prevailing lo local church. 
and um, maybe if we joined with another stronger, healthier church, we could we could uh, get unstuck. And then there's those that are in preservation of life support. They're kind of like the churches, Daniel. They're like in this COVID season. They're they're the ones with a precondition that. You know, this season, this uh, puts them even more vulnerable than they were before the COVID. And so clearly they're looking for uh, a rebirth, a resurrection, a new chapter, a new start, and they can have one. And uh, instead of going out of business or closing, uh, they can have a new chapter by joining with a strong church. Warren, I'm going to come to you a second. But before we do that, Jim, I want to dig into that just a little bit because mm-hmm. um if if someone is a church planning leader or they work for a denomination, they're listening to this call, and especially right now with uh, churches, you know, a lot of them is, uh, in, in the midst of the pandemic, I've heard a lot of uh, church merger conversation happening at denominations. Can you help church planning leaders or church uh, denominational leaders think through what are the signs to look at uh, for a church that might be in preservation mode, life support mode? Uh, and maybe how how do they bridge that conversation and get them to start thinking about potential mergers? Uh, Warren, I liked how you answered that question, a similar question a few weeks ago when you were asked that. Uh, what are the characteristics of a, a church that's in decline? How do they know they're in decline or stuck? Well, often they don't. Often uh, the status quo is is a happy thing, and but. But it's a lack of outward focus, a lack of measures, uh, whatever is measured, the baptisms, uh, the professions of faith, what, whatever your, your metric for saying, you know, are we gaining ground on the harvest? Because, I, again, Jesus calls us not just to care for the flock, but to enlarge the flock, to take the gospel to every nation, tongue, tribe, mm-hmm. and every entity that can hear the gospel. And uh, when churches have multiple years of that not happening, and it's often triggered by a financial, uh, that becomes kind of the break cord to say, okay, something is broken. We can't keep doing this. We need help. But sometimes there's, there's the first step is to help the church realize we're in trouble. Or as Jim said just a few minutes ago, Life could be very different. We could thrive. Uh, and, and we've, we've all but forgotten those eras, uh, in which God was bringing a harvest to us or better stead, sending us out into the harvest and uh, granting spiritual fruit. Yeah. Daniel, one of the things I was going to say is that, uh, 10 years ago, the denominational leaders weren't real keen about mergers and, uh, they saw that more as losing churches instead of uh, revitalizing them. But that's really been a big shift. And we saw that in our last survey, where now uh, denomination leaders and network leaders are seeing, hey, all of denominations have some strong churches. And they and all networks and groups have a lot of struggling or stuck churches. And so they're realizing this could be a way to revitalize our declining or stuck churches, as well as uh, help strengthen our strong churches. And so there, about 20% of all merges are initiated by that third party, you know, bringing them together, either denominational uh, leader or network leader who knows their churches and their community and who's weak and who's strong. And, and so they often, they're often being more proactive in bringing them together. And we're seeing a lot of that now more than we did 10 years ago. I, I think that's helpful to know that a, a large portion of mergers actually are initiated from the outside. I mean, that's really helpful to know. And, and wait, wait, I have a merger fact for that. So let me... Uh, <laughs> yeah, let's look at that. <laughs> Can you see it up there? Yes. Merger fact 25. Uh, who initiates the joining church? And Jim will explain uh, perhaps in a minute what joining mm-hmm. church and lead church is. But that third group is the other, which is like a denominational official, an outside consultant, or somebody saying, okay, let me help you assess the future, and I, I really want to recommend you consider a merger. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's that. So just looking at that chart, sorry, uh, Warren, can you put that back up there real quick? Absolutely. Because <laughs> I think it's helpful to, to go through the, uh, the uh, different proportions here. So in this particular slide, we're, we're seeing that 46% are initiated by joining churches. 34 are initiated by lead churches in a, a you know a one out of five are initiated by denominations jim help us to understand that language what's a lead yeah. church what's what's an initiating church 
Warren, if you go to the dance yep. slide, we like to yep. describe every merger is like a dance, Daniel, where one leads and the other follows. In a dance, both people are important and valuable, but you can't have two leads and you can't have two follows. Um, you, you, uh, one leads and the other follows. And so, um, uh, the lead church is the church that is the primary healthy culture. That's the dominant culture that the joining church will integrate into or come under. And, uh, yeah, there's some definitions there. And so, uh, that's, it's the, uh, the merger dance. And so we talk about, uh, it's very important at the beginning of this conversation to, to define who's the lead and who's the follow or who's the lead and who's the joining church. Sometimes the bigger church that has a big building and all, uh, may be the one that, hey, we should be the lead church, but they're not healthy. They're in decline. We're maybe a smaller church, but it's healthy and growing. Um, can be maybe the lead church, and we've seen that. So it's really not about size. It's more about health and uh, who's the lead and who's the follow. Um, so you can see the joining church is the congregation that is absorbed by. That's more like a rebirth or integrated into. That's more like an adoption into the lead church's mission, vision, strategy, and culture. Matter of fact, we um, uh, talk about the three questions that really frame the whole merger conversation in the next slide. Uh, when you, uh, after you de define, we like to say, de determine the, the, to DTR, define the relationship. Who's the lead? Who's the follow? And then there's three big questions, Daniel. Two church leaders are talking together, two local pastors or a local pastor and a, a board chairman of another church without a pastor or whatever. Is this, is a merger even possible? Is it possible that we could come together as one? And, um, if they agree that, you know, it's possible, then the next question is, all right, it's a nice idea, but is it really feasible? And in our book, uh, both books, both versions, by the way, our second book was uh, incorporates everything from our first book, plus a whole bunch more, <laughs> several chapters. The nice thing, we didn't have to repent of what we wrote eight years ago. It gave us the language and the format and the templates for us that we still use. But in that, we talk about in the feasible feasibility stage, we've identified 25 distinct issues that every church merger has to address. Most of them are benign, uh, there, but there's usually four or five in terms of uh, being a deal, a deal breaker, but there's usually four or five issues different for each church that are problematic. And if they can resolve those and the others will fall in place. And then the last question is, all right, hey, it's not only possible, it's feasible. We agree as a leadership. We think God is leading us together. Now we recommend this to our two congregations, and they're the ones who decide, is it really desirable? That is, with a church vote, usually a congregational vote, or at least a affirmation of the board's uh, decision to join together. But th now there's a whole lot of work in between those three big questions, but that's basically uh, the, the dance and the steps. Is, is, there a, is there a process that you've seen that has led one to become the lead, one to become the, uh, the joiner? What, 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 what do you see tends to be the best practice for discerning who that is? Usually they go ahead, go ahead, Warren. Yeah, why don't you, we jump ahead to the slide mm -hmm. with the, the four questions of should we merge? Yeah, that's a that great question. Often great slide. will help people discern what's, you know, is this God's leading? And if so, what's my role, the role of our church in it? Uh, in our book, Daniel, I have a little chart too that I, a little, uh, template that I send to the two churches if they're, if they contact us. Mm -hmm. And it's a comparison of the two churches side by side of their attendance, their, uh, facilities, their staff, you know, just a number of things to, to look at side by side. And it becomes very apparent when you look at that side by side. Who's, who's the strong lead church and who's the, the joining church? Usually by the time they contact me, they already have a sense of, we, we kind of sense that we know who this is. But, but here's, a, here's four questions that either lead or joining church could ask of themselves when they have a merger opportunity uh, present itself to them. Uh, first question, Danny, would, would our congregation, my congregation, would it be better by merging with this other church rather than remaining separate? Would my local individual congregation be better off by joining with another one? Uh, secondly, could could we accomplish more together than we could separately? Uh, third, would our community be better served if we joined together, that synergy that we can create? And then I think most importantly, uh, uh, the last question, could the kingdom of God be further enlarged by joining together? If you can answer yes to any one of those or several of those, then, then it's worth at least considering maybe we should consider joining together. 
That's really, really helpful. Hey, Warren, help us understand what what are what are the reasons why um, a lead church would want to to pursue a merger? I mean, do you have any? Uh, we happen to have two slides on that, so let's talk I, about. I figured you might. I figured you might. <laughs> merger fact number twenty-seven. The main two reasons why a lead church wants to get involved is either a big heart of uh, wanting to help other churches revitalize, you know, to, to come step over their shoulders. Example, I, I, I had lunch with a pastor of, uh, I don't know, a couple hundred uh, size church, and I asked him what, uh, how they're holding up on the pandemic. And he told me this amazing story of God's financial provision. And, uh, and I said, well, then it could be that God wants you to put your arm around the shoulder of another church in your denomination and to help walk them through uh, the pandemic and their struggles. And he said, you know, I have two such churches that they're, they're acquaintances and I really need to reach out for them. Them, thanks for that push. So, this idea of caring for struggling churches uh, is number one, and right alongside of it is the evangelize, evangelism. You know, how can we reach more people? How can we enlarge? How can God's kingdom uh, be enlarged? Now, there are other reasons, like uh, the third one, I think would very much interest uh, exponential people reproduction to help plant new churches or birth new campuses. Again, the one in five mergers goes to a church planter uh, as a facility, which is just very exciting. Uh, and then there are other reasons cited there. Now, for the joining churches, the greatest reason to merge is often survival. But starting right alongside of that is the starting a new chapter. You know, we're not all we could be. We have a great location. We got zoning. We got people who love the Lord. We're just not able to reach the next generation. You know, maybe, maybe a merger uh, would be God's pathway to help us do that. Uh, then there are other reasons as well, like the intervention, or uh, sometimes it's a pastoral vacancy during this time. You know, hey, if we can't afford, or or maybe we need to think new a new angle. Uh, and often that leads to a merger. When you're also seeing, we're seeing this can become a succession strategy as well. Yeah, and yeah. you see about 10% of that. I, I would also add to that, Daniel, that, uh, about only half the churches that merged were having financial, you know, yeah. struggles. The other half, uh, they, even though they were in decline or, or stuck, uh, they weren't necessarily in financial trouble. But as Warren just said, they, they realize we, we can do better than this. We, we, mm. we used to be a vibrant, flourishing church that was having an impact. And we, we, we're not lacking our resources, but we're lacking knowing how to reach this generation. Mm -hmm. And, um, and so this church that we're considering to join, they're doing this and, you know, we could be better together. We could uh, fill this building again yeah. and, um, and be a vibrant church that's making a difference in the community like we used to decades ago or whatever. I, I love that. I mean, it, it really does sound like mergers are about new life and giving mm -hmm. life. And that, that I think for all of us, when we're talking about kingdom growth, it's not about the growth of one particular congregation. It's about the growth of the kingdom at large. And I, I, we can see how mergers begin to play into that. Can, can you help us understand like the, the range of mergers? I mean, how, how many different kinds of uh, mergers that you've seen uh, in your ministries? Jim, why don't you start? Let me pull up a slide. We got uh, four examples. I've probably been involved with about 100 mergers over the last 15 mm -hmm. years mm -hmm. uh, that came to pass, uh, either me or my team, you know. And then I've probably been involved with 100 merger conversations that never got to a vote. <laughs> so, uh, but our process, someone uh, said, you know, how many church splits come out of a merger? I said, I, I've not had any mergers that end up being a split. I've had a lot of churches that never got to the, you know, they'd realized in the process going through the 25 issues, this isn't a good fit. Or they'll come to the realize, you know, we're not ready to do this. Uh, and sometimes they'll come back a year later and say, we're ready to do this now. And so, but we actually identified four kinds of mergers. Not all mergers are the same. And uh, we found that all of them fall into one of these categories. Uh, first one, which is probably 50% of them are, are rebirth mergers. That is, it's more like an absorption where a declining church, struggling church uh, has lost its way they come fully under another church and basically are reborn, rebirthed, 
with a new vi- mission vision, you know, new DNA flowing into them from the lead church. Uh, and then an- another kind of merger is more like an adoption where it's more, uh, it's not a rebirth as much as more of an integrating in and under a lead church. They're bringing something to the table besides just a building and some people, which is, by the way, the people is the greatest asset in any merger. And uh, so we work really hard to help making that tra- that transition for the majority, and most do uh, in the merger end up staying with the church. We'll talk about that in a few moments. But uh, the integration, they may be bringing in a ministry, some staff, some programs that the lead church says, you know, we'd like to integrate that into our ministry. And so it's more like an adoption. They bring something and then they, uh, you know, become under the lead church. Uh, and then there's um, what we call a marriage merger, which is a very rare uh, merger. We're, we're truly two and, and let's underscore that because almost everybody says, oh, we're a marriage merger. And, and, and you have to say, well, are you really? Uh, because that's the easy thought, but it's very rare. Uh, sorry, Jim. Very rare. And that's why we, we recommend not to use the word partnership in when you're having the merger conversation because partnership kind of like it, it signifies equality, equal, mm-hmm. equals like a marriage does. And, uh, and so, but when those two churches do come together and that really are strong, you know, they're, they're different in their life cycle, but they're bringing some health and strength. Uh, and they, recreate something together like two people in a marriage you know let's create a new vision mission together but this are very rare as as, as uh, warren said now then the icu mergers are really the kind of mergers that we uh, that represent the old mergers of the past which were really an icu is is kind of like the last place before you die and with the hope that maybe we could get revived to live another day and so and that was typically the kind of mergers that we saw before the you know the last decade where churches were coming together, trying to survive basically at the expense of each other, like two individuals drowning, you know, they <laughs> reach out to hold, you know, to survive at the expense of the other. But, but so, they didn't, they didn't think of it that way. They thought, no. Oh, we'll take the best of you and we'll take the best of us and we'll join hands and we'll, you know, only work out of strength. But the culture never changed the lack of outward focus, the lack of clarity of vision. So many things didn't change. And so you didn't end up taking just the best of each. You also took the the toxic elements of each that was causing the sickness to begin with. Mm. Mm. So, Daniel, I would say what, the, and that was pretty much when we wrote the first book 10 years ago or so, all the research pointed to that's why the uh, to these kinds of mergers, there was a really negative attitude about mergers. They don't work. And they were right. Yeah. Uh, at the, but what we were seeing 10 years ago is that uh, a different kind of merger that was less survival driven, although usually there was one church that was stuck or in decline. But they were it was more mission driven. That is, it's declining or stuck church is joining with a church that's clear about its mission and vision and is, it is being effective in its its uh, implementation. And they're joining into that mission and that vision of that church. And that, that was a game changer. And the, you know, the multi-site church movement was the catalyst for that because it was a new opportunity to not just have two churches come together in one building, but now we could be two churches, uh, one church in two places and revitalize and renew and rebirth that declining church. And by coming under the vision and mission of that lead church. And so that was the game changer. And that has continued these last 10 years. And that's what we're seeing a steady growing of this, even before COVID, that this, the merger has become a tool, an option, a healthy tool, an option in the toolbox of the church. Daniel, let me throw in a, a merger fact at this point. The question that we're always asked about, what about the pastor at the joining church? Mm-hmm. And. Point. Our discovery was, were you about to ask that? Yeah, I was, yeah. (laughs) Our discovery was that most joining churches have a pastor who stays. Now, not in that role, and if it's a multi-site, not necessarily at that campus. But again, here's someone who loves God and has, has a certain ministry toolkit Whatever, something in the past hasn't thrived, so can we find a new hat that will help this wonderful person with a lot of good relationships in the community often and in the congregation that joins? Uh, can we help that leader find a new place to thrive, whether it's a missions pastor, a visitation pastor, a small groups pastor, or something where there's a area of strength but isn't necessarily in the the key leadership mm-hmm. role. 
And I would say the same for the staff as well. There's There's been an overwhelming commitment by the lead church, in my experience, to say, we, actually, we, could use, we need you in that role that you're in now as one of the staff members, or we don't need that role because we already have it, but we have, uh, we'd like to invite you to consider another option. We have three openings here or another position. Would you consider that? And if that doesn't work out, then they, they usually, and we recommend a very generous severance uh, plan and helping them to land somewhere in a timely way. Yeah, I'd, I'd imagine having the buy-in of that, uh, that pastor to lead through cultural change, to point to new leadership is, is uh, essential to that. What about church members, though? What are you seeing post-merger? Uh, what happens to church members? Do they tend to stay? Well, well I'm glad for that. <laughs> <laughs> Indeed, yes. And because we did talk before the, uh, our uh, presentation, I was able to cue many of these up. Only a uh, merger fact number 10, uh, only a small percentage of adjoining church mm. members depart post merger. Now, again, this is all in the attitude and heart of the lead church. If in the business world, it's an acquisition and I don't care about the people. If they get in the way, sever them. And, you know, we're all about the bottom line of finances in ministry mergers. The heart of our ministry is people, and uh, we want to help the former church's crowd uh, continue to grow in Christ, uh, truly integrate with the new congregation. And by the way, you know it when instead of talking about that, you know, our church and the new church or us and them, or and when pretty soon you look around and you go, well, I just don't quite remember who all was with the old church and who all was with the merged church, you know, that that can happen. Uh, and so this attitude of honoring is, is actually the key, H-O-N-O-R, uh, in terms of, of validating the tremendous experience and background of the former members. But that doesn't mean that the men's pancake breakfast that met, met on the fifth, fourth Saturday of every month is necessarily going to continue. So they're there is the pain of loss, of doing things in a different way. Mm -hmm. uh, but there hopefully is the joy. I remember being on a Long Island church with the, the former body. There are 32 that, uh, out of the 33 that voted to do the merger. And, and a lady was crying the opening week when the, their former building was, was packed. And, and I said, you know, well, how was it? She said, I have prayed for this day for years that our church building would be filled again and would be filled with young people again. And it's happened today. I still don't like the music, but I can put up with anything to see this kind of new life. And that yeah. heart, because often the music is very different, uh, <laughs> that heart uh, makes a great uh, integration of the joining and the lead. Right, we're going to get to questions from the audience in just a little bit. If you got a question for Warren or Jim, go ahead and drop it in the Q&A there, and we'll get to it as, as soon as we're done through the presentation. But I, I want to um, uh, ask a question. I, I've got a, a good friend who um, uh, was a part of a church merger. He was a church planter out in the Baltimore uh, area. And they were, uh, he was leading a church plan for maybe a year or two. And then, um, the church that they were borrowing, uh, the church building that they were borrowing, uh, that congregation approached them about a potential merger. And he told me after they went through the, the dance that you described, um, that his, his mindset as a church planter, he had to graduate several stages because he went from leading a, a smaller church of young people to now having to do funerals and those kinds of things. Which is why he needed the joining church pastor to uh, to do some of that. I'm in, sorry. Go ahead. In, in this particular case, they, they didn't have an existing pastor. So okay. can you help uh, future church planters who will probably rehearse this story over and over again You know, uh, in the future? how to work through that mindset from being just a church planter a couple of years on the ground to now having to worry about, you know, uh, cradle to grave type issues uh, as a, a, a pastor of a, of a, you know, a multi-generational church. Jim, I'll just say a comment, then you take the bulk, please. Uh, but that is a very astute observation 
because a church planter tends to draw the age of the church planter minus a few years. So if I'm in my, you know, mid thirties, the congregation is in the lower thirties. And all of a sudden in a merger, I now have a multi-generational church and I have to think about all kinds of things and ministries that I didn't have to think about before. So this is a dramatic shift. Um, I'll, I'll give my merger fact and then throw it to Jim. The, the merger fact is when asked, would you do it again? 82% of surveyed mergers said yes. And we sliced and diced it. Well, well, is it different from the lead church and the joining church? And is it different for denominations or none? Is it different for smaller and larger? So whatever the experience of this church planter in terms of all of a sudden going multi-generational, most of them say it was worth it and I'd do it again. Hmm. Jim, what would you add? Well, I, it's hard to add anything to that more, Warren, but I would just say, Daniel, this is what men and women who are called to be shepherds and pastors, uh, this is what we long for is to is to serve the needs of people. And, um, uh, and, and you realize when you go from being a really young church and now you have a lot of older adults, sometimes the preferences get some, you know, some, some, some heat can get between the preferences of what we like and styles and all that. But the other side of the coin is that they bring so much wisdom and maturity to the, to that uh, young pastor. And when you can learn, and, and, and there are a lot of these individuals that are very wise and godly men and women who, who, uh, want to help and pour their life into, into their young pastor. And, and, um, I, there's the, the benefits outweigh the, the liabilities, the challenges. Yes. Uh, this is everybody's in a certain stage in their life journey. And, um, if you're going to be a fully functioning church, you're going to have all those generations eventually. Yeah. So now, now the book has a lot of stories. It's just packed with mm -hmm. stories and I'm just giving you the merger fact in, in an overbalance, but, just to affirm, Daniel, enough of those pastors make the curve because the joining church people, the majority of them end up mm -hmm. staying on. You know, only only you see the percentages yeah. of what percent departed over the course of the first year after the merger. So um, kudos yeah. to these church planters become multi-generational pastors and, uh, you know, the Ephesians 4, 11 and 12, equipping the saints to do the work of the ministry. A lot of these senior saints are very capable of ministry. And if you mobilize them well, uh, your volunteer staff uh, grows in wonderful ways. Now, I would also say, too, that uh, that's why the majority of when there is a lead uh, joining pastor that comes with the merger most of them stay and it's really wise many times they help with the preaching they often help with the social the, the pastoral care and uh, all that is uh, something that helps that young pastor someone who's got seasoned experience and so it's it's this is why we see majority of pastors do stay but in a different role and that's often what they like to do this is you know they're glad to give up the preaching responsibility now and yeah. really just love and shepherd people uh or and um, so that's why we see that happening. And that's a, that's one of the ways to benefit and expand your ministry capacity when you bring on people like that. Well, I've heard stories also of uh, uh, members of the um, joining church. You know, for years, their kids wouldn't come to church. And, mm -hmm. uh, and it was either, you know, whatever, too old fashioned or whatever. And then. Uh, after the merger, uh, the new life and energy and the excitement uh, of of really, you know, the gospel, it really is just the gospel uh, and seeing, um, you know, that person's children come back to the church. And I, I think that you can probably tell that story over and over again. Well, and, and, and let's not take out the self-invested interest, you know, that, yeah. that the grandparents ha have been praying, That's let's right. imagine uh, faithfully, that yeah. my grandchildren would would have an enthusiastic faith in the Lord and would grow in the Lord. And so if if I have to make sacrifices so that my grandchildren will come back to this church, that makes it all the, that that's one more motivation point yep. for me to put up with the music or, or other kinds of chaos that just might not be what I was hoping for or used to. Uh, and seeing my grandchildren excited about their faith I'll put up with anything. Mm.
Well, yeah, there's, uh, there's a lot of good questions coming in here, but before mm -hmm. we get to them, I want to talk to the to the larger uh, picture of when you go through a merger, what are the metrics of success that we should be looking for to know that, you know what, we really did a good job uh, through this merger? That That is a really good question, and uh, I'm Jim, I'll... Oh, this is uh, kind of animated. You want me to fill it in as you talk, or leave? Yeah, uh, we we've kind of made that chart here. We'll just say uh, clarifying the expectations of what is merger success. Uh, it's not a hundred percent retaining the staff, church, and members and attenders. It's retaining people who embrace a shared vision for the future. It's not merger success is not a hundred percent approval of the members, but it's a hundred percent engagement of those who approve. Uh, it's not merger success is not saving a facility for emotional or nostalgic reasons. It's stewarding a facility for kingdom purposes. Uh, merger success is not about preserving a church name, but it's but merger successes focuses on leveraging a legacy. Uh, it's not about let me pause right there for a second. I have a church that I was working with earlier in, in this covid season. It was a church that was started in 1815 in Boston uh, in the the mother church of that church, uh, John, President John Adams, uh, was the was the president at the time. That church has continued all through these centuries, two hundred years, and down to fifteen people. And uh, one of the larger growing multi-site churches in the area offered their help to all the churches uh, to, you know, help them with recording, putting it in online, you know, online, all that. And as out of that res uh, relationship, that church said, you know, we're down to fifteen people. Could we talk about just joining you and giving you our building? Wow. I, I uh, hope you've, you've heard the theme of out of that relationship yeah. in so many of our conversations. That is so core to a healthy merger. If, the if, best mergers come out of a foundation of a relationship, for sure. Yeah. And uh, But merger success is not about maintaining the status quo, but it's really about beginning a new life cycle. So those are some things we help church leaders understand what success is. And uh, and it's not so that I hope that's helpful. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I love that idea about allowing it to be a relationship and following the the speed of relationships. And so that was one of the questions, actually, that we have from one of our, our viewers and listeners. Uh, they asked, how long does a, a merger typically take? What's been your experience about uh, how long it takes for it to be healthy? And then also, what's the fastest that you've seen? Well, in our surveys, we... Um, uh, ask that very question. And the average is in this, uh, you know, wait for it now, hold it. No, 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 no. I don't have that slide here, but it's in the book. It's <laughs> no, I don't. No, I was just building up the anticipation. Oh, okay. Uh, uh, it's about an average of eight months from the initial conversation to the final vote, which uh, we like to say, uh, it doesn't take long to discern is this right? Is this merger the right thing for us to do? And it doesn't take long to explain all this. Matter of fact, we found that uh, the longer you take, uh, time is one of the biggest inhibitors of mergers coming to pass. And also, too, Daniel, when you're in a merger conversation, you can't go on for years with this because it keeps everybody in kind of a holding pattern while we figure out are we going to join this church or not? And you know, but there's there's life that keeps going on. There's Christmas. There's New Year's. There's Easter. There's programs. And so. Uh, we, this is why we, we help develop some, some processes and tools to quickly help churches quickly discern, is this even something we should consider? And if it is, how do we, uh, resolve these issues and get to an answer quickly, uh, within, you know, that's thought through and, and prayed through and then, um, determined by usually a congregational vote. So less than a year. Less than a year. Wow. Now, and, and let me just clarify. Congregational vote, yes, we recommend whether it's required or not. You know, many denominations and others, if the if the leader, the district superintendent, bishop, whatever, says you're going to do it, then you're going to do it. But the idea of locally inviting ownership, you know, yeah. who, who senses that this is what God is doing uh, and wants to be part of it um, really helps the local body to sure. To you know that anchor, that that nail in the in uh, uh, point in the sand to be able to say yes, we decided this, and look what God did. I'm glad we you put the nail in the coffin, Warren. I like <laughs> I like line in the sand. But you know, by the time <laughs> I was realizing this is not. I need a better word picture. Yeah, yeah right. you do. 
usually by the time the church, the two leadership teams would recommend to their congregations, it's about a month long conversation, public conversation with some town halls, sure. some uh, Q and FAQ, uh, you know, when you roll out the merger. And, and as Warren said, uh, even if they're not voting, required to vote on this to at least affirm, give them the chance to affirm and to ask their questions, but also to affirm the decision of the board or the denomination uh, that is uh, bringing this merger um, to pass. Yeah, that's great. Well, I've seen them. You, you've probably seen and walked with some where the mergers uh, didn't work in the end. It, it uh, you know, I don't know if failure is the right word, but you go through a process and then the adoption, the merger didn't go through. What are some of the common reasons that you've seen? One of the questions uh, uh, that we're asked here is what's one of the common reasons for why the uh, merger adoption process doesn't go through? Well, I would say, first of all, as we mentioned in the beginning, the, one of the first mistakes churches make is not defining the relationship. And so it's very important that you define that relationship, who's the lead and who's the follow. Now, and I always tell churches, if you're the follow church, you're making most of the sacrifice. You pretty much are giving up everything. And what do we get in return? Life or, you know, prevailing church. Um, now, the lead church, will their, their challenge is often the expense of, abs- of absorbing a building or a facility and, and all that and the challenge of that. But um, but really understanding who's the lead and who's the follow, that's the first mis- uh, first big important step. I, probably the thing that kills mergers more than anything else, the merger conversation that never gets to a vote, is that someone uh, doesn't want to give up control. Mm-hmm. It's either a, a pastor, which is not often the case, but... Um, but it's usually a board member or an influential family in the church or whatever. Uh, someone who, uh, you're, we're just going to give them our building. And, uh, you know, and that, that seems repugnant to them at times. And I have to remind them sometimes, you know, you have, you have a chance to choose your destiny and choose your next pastor. Or if you continue on this path, you're going to lose this building and this legacy and everything because it's, you're not going to be able to, to survive. And so, but though, uh, I think, um, Another is um, uh, having a backward look, looking backwards instead of forwards, forward, trying to preserve the past instead yeah. of embracing a new chapter for the for the future. Many times in, in this conversation, it's easy for the joining church to see all the things they're losing. You know, we, we're giving up this, this, and this. And, and, and what the lead church and when we consult churches, we have to help them understand, here's what you're gaining. And, you know, here's what here's here's what you get if, by joining with this other church. And so um, and that's, setting those where, expectations. that's where trust fits in. Mm-hmm. Yes. Setting expectations, but also a, a true mutual trust that I have it for your best interest and you have it for my best interest. I'm not in this just to get your property and gobble it up or to get your you know bank account or some other mm-hmm. asset that you've got. Uh, but it's truly that our heart is to minister in your community. We truly all sense God's leading about it. And we've done the kinds of interactions to build the trust, to continue to think the best of each other when there's a bumpy moment in the process. Daniel, we have a chapter in our book that's all about, and the title is, Are You a Church Merger-Friendly Leader? Mm. Are You a Merger-Friendly Leader? Mm-hmm. And we talk about, uh, and this is particularly with a lead church pastor or leadership. And we talk about three characteristics. First of all, the ones who are the most merger friendly have humility. They have humility and, um, um, and they demonstrate that. They don't say we have all the answers and you need to follow our way, but they recognize God's favor on them and they are, they have humility and respect towards the other church. The second thing is, is that they, they, uh, have a kingdom mindset. It's not about your kingdom or my kingdom, my ego. It's really about God's kingdom because really this is his church. And, um, and, and we're, and we were surprised, delight, pleasantly surprised how many churches, the, the number one reason why the church, lead churches were even doing mergers was because they wanted to bring revitalization to other churches. And yeah. so, 
um, they really had a heart for for the kingdom. They said, we're a part of this kingdom and this community, and together we're, and so we could be better together for God's kingdom. And so they have a kingdom mindset. And then lastly, they have compassion, or they have a, uh, they're very sensitive to the, uh, the pain, the grieving process that a joining church will go through. And they go through the five stages of every church member does and staff member. They go through that. Even when they know it's the right thing, it's still a loss. It's like a death. And, right. uh, and so lead churches. I miss the men's pancake breakfast that we yeah. used to hel held for years on the fourth Saturday of every month. Yeah. Or the soloists, the special singing or, or those things, right? Well, mm -hmm. I, I want to do a, a, a real life scenario here. We've got a question from one of our, um, our, our watchers here, uh, and this gives you a chance to do some real, uh, real life diagnosis and consultation. But this is what they write. It says, we, uh, the potential lead church, are stable, healthy overall and strategically asking how to grow. But we still have areas to improve and haven't been growing too much. Should we still adopt another smaller church that needs more work than us? We're already partnering with them on many levels. So it looks like they've got an existing relationship. They've been partnering on many levels. The lead church, it looks like the potential lead church, uh, they seem pretty healthy. They're not growing as fast as I think they could. But uh, should they consider broaching the conversation with the smaller church? What are your thoughts? Or what's maybe what's one next step that they can start thinking through? Well, I would say there's a, uh, Warren has a book in his hand. <laughs> you want to hold that up? <laughs> Re read the book, especially the first couple of chapters about uh, the benefits of uh, and how other churches are benefiting and using mergers to accomplish uh, their mission and vision. But I think that the... Um, and, uh, and so the, the bottom line there picture is to get a realistic picture of what a merger might look mm -hmm. like, the pros and cons, so yeah. so that you don't end up saying, oh, if I had known it was this, we would have waited, or if I had known this was it, uh, this was how it worked, we would have done it sooner. So let us give you a realistic picture and hopefully along the way enlarge your vision and heart for what God could do. I think uh, they already are partnering together on projects and, and strategic relationships already. That's the great uh, soil of, out of which mergers can come because that's where that trust, we get to know each other's heart comes. And so they're not somebody we don't know. We know this other church. Mm -hmm. We know each other. We've worked together. And um, uh, and so a lot of lead church pastors have asked us over the years, and that's why we've written some more about it in this latest book, how do you start initiate that conversation? Well, um, if they're already in a relationship, it's just a natural conversation to say, would, would it make sense to even, for us to even consider joining together? Um, I don't know if they have come together in one, you know, one location or they keep it in two locations or there's all kinds of different, uh, scenarios on that. But, um, it sounds like they already have the relation. It's all about relationship and resource. And we thought with the two R's. I, I hear one more factor going on. I hear the lead church saying, you know, hey, whatever we do, we're going to reproduce ourselves in someone else. And that's so true. You reproduce who you are, not what you say. Um, you know, are we really healthy enough? Are we really mm -hmm. far enough along uh, to do so? And I think aligning vision to say, what is it? that God is trying to do through us in our community. And back to the questions Jim uh, voiced earlier, you know, would we be able to achieve that dream that God has given us better together or as continuing in separate churches that just do projects together? Uh, mm -hmm. And I think when you have that clarity, then you have a, a stronger sense of divine mandate to say, okay, we sought the Lord, we sensed he was in it, assuming the answer was yes. Uh, and so when we go through rough spots or uh, th that, that we know we took the right course because it's getting us closer to what God has called us to do. Mm. Daniel, I would say the 25 issues that we have articulated, we have a little questionnaire that you evaluate uh, how where, where the problem areas might be, but that just that process alone will say, you know, uh, we're not ready for this conversation for this kind of relationship, yeah. Yeah. or you know, we're more similar than we realize, and uh, we complement each other in some areas where we're weak, you're strong, and where you're strong, we're weak, 
And uh, that, that comes, that surfaces through that process. And this is why many times when I've taken churches through that, they realize this isn't a good fit for us, or this isn't the time for us to be thinking about this. Others are like, this, this is coming together better than we thought. But that's and, the process that we, go ahead. And just to clarify, that's an appendix in the book where we give mm-hmm. you the blank 25 questions, but we also give you actually two different pairs of churches that wrote their answers in side by side, both of which led to a healthy, fruitful merger. And so you can kind of say, all right, if, if, if it helps you discern how aligned you are. Mm-hmm. Well, and one of the questions that came in here also is uh, sometimes I, I wonder if there's a sense in which the joining church is just asking in the back of the head, is this merger really about just so this church plant can get a building? Um, and so uh, my guess is that the assessment process that you have in your book can kind of lead those conversations at a very mm-hmm. transparent level. Is, is that what I'm, I'm understanding? They can help, but what you're raising is the issue of trust. Mm-hmm. And I mean, that's what the Evangelical Council for Financial Accountability's motto is, enhancing trust. And that trust is the currency of any kind of these uh, relationships for mergers as well. Absolutely. Well, hey, we're coming up on our time here, but I want to ask you one last question because I think it's really important and crucial during this time. A lot of churches in the midst of the pandemic, some of them are are experiencing, you know, some level of growth, financial giving, whatever. And then there are others on the other side of the spectrum where they're really asking the question, are we going to make it through the pandemic? Um, speak to the network leaders, the pastors on this call, if they happen to be in either one of those camps. What's their practical next step? I obviously buy your book and I'm, 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 that's going to be my answer. Buy better together. Uh, but what can they be thinking about over the next few months to help them prayerfully decide that maybe we should broach this topic with another church? Let, let me start. Um, nationally, about 2% of churches per year close. That's, you know, some denominations higher than others. Can you say that again, Warren? You broke up. Nationally, about 2% of most denominate, of, of churches across the spectrum of Protestantism close each year. And that's going to increase because of the pandemic. We're, we all are sad about that, but those who went into the pandemic weak, uh, with, uh, pre-existing conditions, so to speak, are, are going to really struggle. So, so, Denominational and network leaders plan on an increase in mergers. Uh, anticipate it and help churches explore, you know, should this be for us? Uh, and uh, realize that mergers can be a very healthy, wonderful thing for starting a new chapter of life and, and begin to frame those questions. Uh, by asking questions, you know, have you ever thought about a merger? Uh, is is a innocent, sincere question that helps begin the conversation. Daniel, we were seeing a increase in over the last decade in mergers before COVID because there has been a shift in American culture away from church attendance, as you know. Even though we still see a lot of churches, 20%, 15 to 20% are growing vibrant churches, but that culture that valued church attendance has faded. And so this is one of the reasons the publishers came to us and said, we see mergers are, are, are increasing and had no idea COVID was coming, of course, a year ago when, uh, when they asked us to release this book this fall. But they, uh, as we, after the COVID season hit, they said, you know, we're only going to release one book this fall. And it's your book because mm. it's so timely. And so uh, um, the COVID has only highlighted what we already know. This pandemic is the, the good, the bad, and the ugly. It's only reinf- or, uh, accelerating what was already been happening. And so a lot of those conversations are happening, occurring right now. And yes, network and denominational leaders are being more proactive in bringing those two those churches together. I think the the book has been out for a decade, the first book, and we gave language and permission to even have these conversations and 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 as, as a viable option for churches. I think that's becoming more mainstream. I feel like uh, we see how God has orchestrated all that in the past to prepare us so that this is, does become an option. There's going to be a huge transfer of church real estate 
through retirement, I mean, through, you know, pastors retiring, churches going declining, not able to sustain. And so there's a huge opportunity here, here, and this can be a win-win, not a win-lose or a lose-lose, but a win-win. And I think more and more church leaders are beginning to realize that and are being very proactive in a positive way to help expedite these conversations. Well, I, I really believe that as well. I, I want to thank you, Warren Bird and Jim Tomerlin, for being on today for uh, on front lines. And uh, Warren, hold that book up one more time. Make sure you grab their updated and expanded version of Better Together, Making Church Mergers Work. And speaking of Better Together, don't forget about the upcoming Exponential Roundtables coming to your city, um, especially during right now. We're in a very divisive cultural moment. Um, mm -hmm. The call to be better together is really uh, never greater than a time uh, as of right now. So when you join the conversation at a local roundtable event, you'll participate in an important conversation in your city and be connecting with others as well. We're actually demonstrating what it means to be better together through these roundtables. Thanks so much for joining us on this particular episode. We'll be back next week with Peyton and we'll be back with another guest on Frontlines. Until then, God bless you and thank you for serving the kingdom the way that you do. See Thanks, Daniel. You're a great you, host. Daniel. Thank you, guys. Yes. This fall, Exponential is hosting roundtable events in cities all across America. These half-day gatherings in smaller settings will allow church leaders to prioritize peer-to-peer -peer conversations and receive practical training on how to prepare their church to lead for racial reconciliation. Exponential roundtables will help you continue to pursue church multiplication in these challenging times. Find a roundtable near you this fall by visiting multiplication.org.